Hey guys, today we're talking to executive producer Ryan Suffren. Now, he's the guy behind such great documentaries as Laurel Canyon, A Moment in Time, and McCartney 321. So we're going to get his behind-the-scenes perspective and hear a little bit about what went into making both of those documentaries today. We're also going to get a sneak peek on his upcoming documentary on Jazz Fest and discuss the bands and songs that inspired his love for classic rock. So let's get started. Ryan, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you on because the projects you have done are so impressive. I mean, they're produced incredibly, but to a music lover like me, your music documentaries are really moving. So let's get into it. You know, okay. you know that uh, this season is primarily about the California sound. So we are going to talk about Laurel Canyon. But before we do that, I want to highlight the fact that you did some incredible movies that came out just in the last year and a half. And during the pandemic actually saved me or at least gave me something to look forward to, <laughs> which we all needed. So you executive produced the Bee Gees, right? How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, the documentary that came out on HBO? Yes. You also produced, obviously, the two-part epics docuseries Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time. Yes. And on Hulu right now, you executive produce the McCartney 321 with Rick Rubin. Correct. Okay. We have to get into that because that blew my mind. Well, the, the crappy thing about the pandemic is we didn't do a single screening of any of those films. And, and part of like being a filmmaker is you toil away making these things and you look forward to the day where you get to go and sit in a theater with an audience. Sure. And none of those had screenings, which, you know, it's like, woe was me. It's like, I'm not, you know. But there's got to be something to be said for sitting in a theater with everyone and watching them experience it for the first time. Exactly. Because otherwise you're just, you're just watching this thing over and over again by yourself or, you know, with your collaborators. And the whole point is to bring it to an audience. And it's so strange to have now put out like th three things mm -hmm. during the pandemic and not have any of them get that audience feedback. So, I mean, it's great that people seem to really have responded positively to them, you know, and I, and I'm incredibly proud to be involved with these projects but it's been a weird experience to not get that payback of bringing it to the, you know. I can't imagine that sitting down in a movie theater and really gauging, you know, the audience's reaction, vibing off the reaction and just getting some sort of idea of how it's affecting them is really um, a high point in the movie making process. It's the point, <laughs> you know. I get it. Well, I also read in the news, um, and this is exciting, that you have another Epics music docu-series coming out, Mr. A and Mr. M, the story of Ann M Records. Yes. And that's coming out in December. Now, that chronicles the story of Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. Are you going to get to have a screening there? I, I hope so. It's TBD at this point. But um, yeah, I hope we do something. 
I know. I know. It's like two weeks seems like two years these days. You just don't know what's going to change. Yeah. I mean, it's like whatever, whatever variant is going to come out next, you know, it's going <laughs> to screw it all up. But, um, but yeah, if you, if you like music docs, you're going to like that one. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to see it. So with all these projects under your belt, one would have to think that you're a big music fan or a rock fan. I am definitely a big music fan. My my obsession with making music docs is because I was never good enough to be a musician. So I get to play with music <laughs> in telling stories about music, you know? Wait a second. Did Was there some sort of past venture as a musician? Past failed venture as a musician? Definitely. I, you know, I picked up a guitar when I was in high school and I thought I'm going to be, you know, like you two was the big inspiration and I'm going to be, you know, a great guitarist, musician. And then I just didn't have the patience to actually practice. (laughs) (laughs) To practice. Okay. It wasn't that you weren't any good. It was just that you didn't want to do it. I just, it was like, it just took too much time. So I put it down and I picked up a, a camera instead. And you started taking pictures. I did. Yeah. And so I started taking pictures of musicians. And I thought for a moment, like, this would be like, I photographed U2 and Johnny Cash. And oh. I was at, the, I, but it was the moment where I, 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 figure out how to get a press pass. So, cause I was the photo editor for the daily Illini, which was at the university of Illinois, the, the publication, the student publication. And I used that like credentials to get into all <laughs> sorts of con- concerts that I should never. And I got, I got to shoot the Rolling Stones opening their tour. no, at Soldier Field, and I, it was such a coup. There was no reason I should have been there, but I, I was able to find my way to be on this little stage photographing, you know, Mick Jagger and the Stones, and I was with all of these old dudes who just looked completely unhappy, and I was like, I don't, I don't want, I don't think I want this job. I don't think I want to do what they're doing, you know? Really? And I was, I was this stupid kid that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. But how amazing was that, that feeling of getting in? I mean, it was to turn around and look out at 60,000 people or 80,000 people, whatever it was. It was like, I definitely got that rush of like, what it's like to perform. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like they're not here for me. (laughs) And they're not. (laughs) No. Did you you get to meet Mick or Keith or any of the guys? I did not get to meet any of the Stones yet. Yet. Yeah. And unfortunately, Charlie Watts just left us. So I think Keith Richards is going to outlive all of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's jump back to, um, you know, the projects themselves. So when you took on Laurel Canyon, a moment in time, 
You obviously had a reverence for the time and place. I did. Yeah, I drive through it all the time. (laughs) The music itself and what really transpired there. You were intimately connected to it. Yes. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of, so that project was supposed to be a scripted project at Amblin Television. Oh. And they decided, ah, it's not working as a TV show. Mm-hmm. So let's make it a documentary. And then it became my thing. It dropped into my lap, basically, courtesy okay. of my boss. Okay. So you get former this project, boss. former boss, you get this project What goes into producing a documentary like Laurel Canyon? For those of us not in the industry, I mean, where do you even start? You know, so much transpired there. It's like, you know, with any historic piece, where do you even begin? Well, it's for that one, especially, it was about putting the team together because Mm -hmm. there were so many artists involved that we needed, you know, we needed like a, a rock star team to pull it off. So it was getting Allison, who had directed the Eagles. Allison Elwood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she already had an intimate knowledge with the subject matter. And it was getting Jigsaw Productions. It was getting Amblin. It was getting Warner Music Group. So it was about putting all of the pieces together just to start. And then you have to make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah then, then you have to do the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you actually get to make it. The making it part is the best part. Right. All that stuff is, uh, it's necessary, but it's not, you know, if I'm instructing somebody on how to do this stuff, it's like you have to get, you've got to get your collaborators together. And for music docs in particular, it's the tricky part is the music and who owns the music. And the music is owned by two different people, usually, or two different, it's the publishing And then it's the masters. So working with, you know, getting those entities on board, whether it's estates, whether it's the actual artists, whether it's labels, that's a necessity to be able to make a music doc. So you get these elements together. You've got the music. You sit down with your team and you think, all right, here are all the artists we want to go after and we want to be included in this documentary. And I'm sure that there are some artists that maybe don't want to be included or don't want to do on-camera interviews. How did you kind of craft that all together and create this storyline, this narrative? Sorry, we have to put this in layman's terms because not my world. And I want to understand how you go about putting together such a high class, for lack of a better word, documentary uh, together like that. Well, for Laurel Canyon, the great thing was is we didn't do on-camera interviews. They were oh, all off right. camera with the exception of we featured Henry Diltz and, and Narit, uh, the two photographers, mm-hmm. but we got the best batting av- average ever of getting people to say yes, because it was off camera. And I'm, I've become a huge fan of that. <laughs> like. Pulling old interviews and footage and things like that, rather than sitting down in a room with them. Because that's how you can work in, you know, Jim Morrison and, you know, Mama Cass talking alongside Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell. And you kind of don't know, like, 
who did we interview and who didn't we interview? And that was the point from the beginning was let's make this an immersive Mm -hmm. experience. Like let's not have this be talking heads docs, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've produced several talking heads docs, like nothing against having interviews with people on camera, but I have become a huge fan of challenging yourself to figure out how to do it without cutting to the interview. Right. Well, no, it was so immersive. And and this footage that you guys found was incredible. And I, I can only think that there had to have been some great stuff that you found that wound up on the cutting room floor. Well, there always is, you know. <laughs> I mean, Henry, so Henry Diltz alone, as you know, mm-hmm. has the most crazy extensive collection of photographs. Oh, yeah. And, and so p- just being able to figure out which one to choose, it's like there is so much stuff that that guy has shot, you know? I know. I personally have a reverence for that time and all the great music that came out of it. And there's so many documentaries, you know, that are that touch on it here and there. And you guys really did a great job of bringing it all together and really one cohesive, you know, two-part series. And I thought, God, they did that so well and nothing was left out. You know, to me, you hit all the the tangible points of the history of that time, that 1965 to 1975. And when you end it with Crosby's, um, you know, him talking about there are moments in time that cannot be explained. And he talks about, you know, the Renaissance in Italy and he talks about France in the 30s or Paris in the 30s. And then he talks about in Los Angeles, 65 to 75. (laughs) You're reminding me of how hard it was to get Crosby to do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, and I think that there's something amazing about it's not just Laurel Canyon. I mean, these they do. You have these moments in time where you get people coming together, doing something amazing, or it's the Seattle grunge scene or, you know, or mm-hmm. hate Ashbury. There are these fascinating moments of a uh, confluence, you know, collaboration, mm-hmm. geography and the right people at the right time. And I find that fascinating, you know, and also as just a music lover, it's like some of my favorite music came out of these places. When you were putting together everything with Laurel Canyon, who were some of your favorites as you were putting all the footage together? CSN is definitely up there. Like that's Crosby and Stills. We didn't get Neil Young. Um, Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, huge Joni Mitchell fan. Yeah. And and I felt like like our whole goal from the beginning was we're going to make the definitive Laurel Canyon story. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, we we heard that story has been told, that story has been told. And they're like, no, 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 no one's done it to this level. Mm-hmm. And there was no way we could do it without getting Joni Mitchell. Absolutely not. So huge fan. Yeah, no, she's such an integral part of everything that happened there. And when you think of collaboration, I mean, she was essentially, you know, responsible for bringing Crosby, Stills and Nash together. Yeah, she was the glue. She was the glue. And from there, I do want to jump 
to McCartney three two one. Okay, so I have to ask you first of all about the aesthetic. What made you want to do it all in black and white? Well, it's not necessarily. It wasn't my decision outright, but it just felt like that felt right. And I think that I think it was Rick's decision to have it be in black and white. And it wasn't just that it was black and white. It was that the focus was on Rick McCartney and then whatever instrument was around them or whatever they were kind of focused on. It, it, the whole thing was so simple. It was almost like you didn't want to detract from anything he was saying or detract from the music itself. Does that make sense? No, totally. I mean, Rick is an amazing interviewer. He's mm-hmm. got his own podcast with Malcolm Gladwell. And so the whole premise was like, okay, so what do we do with the Beatles? What do we do with Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin? Maybe the most interesting thing to do is to have Rick Rubin talk to Paul McCartney and listen to the music. And it's so basic and simple. And yet with those two at the helm, incredibly, I think, fascinating. And when you approached Paul McCartney about this and doing it this way, was he completely on board from the get-go? Well, Rick did all that. And this thing came together in two weeks. What? It was like, hey, you want to do something? Yeah. All right. Let's let's do something. And we were shooting two weeks later. Uh, from conception yes. to actual shooting two weeks. Maybe three, but it was close to two weeks. Yeah, it was the most insane and during COVID. So it was crazy how quickly this thing got put together. And then we immediately started cutting it. And most projects I work on take years. Right. McCartney 321. We shot in August of last year, a year ago, and it came out in July, which is the, and it was a six part series. Right. Well, okay. So within two weeks, you were like, how much planning went into this? Was was it like, you know what, Paul, let's just sit down and let's pick some songs and let's just go. I mean, it was everybody on deck. It was full, full on, you know? It was definitely a stressful two weeks. Right. But, and how- you know, as in all fairness, as as an executive producer, as opposed to director or producer, I wasn't necessarily in the trenches as much as my collaborators were. So, but- so, uh, so other people had to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the tracks themselves that were discussed? Who chose those, Paul? Rick. Rick did. Yeah. Okay. And he sent them over to Paul ahead of time. I know you weren't in the weeds, but he sent them over to Paul ahead of time and was like, hey, this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to do. I don't know if he sent them ahead of time. I think it, uh, there are several of those he just picked out. Really? But that was the first time those tracks have left Abbey Road Studios. So, oh my gosh. And it was probably the first time Paul has listened to any of that stuff since they actually made it which is why you you get that you see him reacting to this stuff that he made 50 years ago that's what i loved 
because you're a beetle. You have, I mean, literally been given every question you could possibly think of, and you probably have a canned response for every question. And watching his face, Rick Rubin playing him something, or Rick Rubin reading a quote from Lenin or whatever it was, all of these things happening for the first time for Paul, that was priceless to me. No, it, and, and that's part of the, that's part of the genius of it. Cause obviously Paul McCartney has been asked every Beatles question ever. Yes. And this was a way to spur a different response or a different story that isn't the canned story. Right. So you said it took two weeks, which means that within those two weeks, you also had to choose the tracks, or Rick did, choose the tracks and approach Abbey Road and yes. get that audio. Yes, all of that happened in two weeks. That is incredible to me. So, and maybe you don't even know the question, uh, the answer to this, um, but did Rick know what he was looking for? Did he approach them and say, look, these are the tracks we want to highlight. I want Rick, to see. Rick Rubin is the biggest Beatles fan in the world, probably. So he knew what he wanted to talk about. And how long did the shoot take? Two days. Just two days? Yeah. Are there going to be any follow-ups to it? <laughs> no, I, th I mean, I think we did it all. Maybe six, five, four. <laughs> I mean, you did it all in two weeks. You could do it again, right? <laughs> Well, I'd like to do it again with somebody else, maybe. Yeah, most definitely. So the stories um, that he told behind each song were absolutely fascinating. You, for you personally, were there any that stood out? The most important moment for me is a day in a life. Mm -hmm. And the idea of this huge swell of music and hearing for me the first time how involved McCartney was in this craziness of what they were doing with this huge orchestra. Mm -hmm. And that's also like, that's the end of the Beatles story. Yeah. And the fact that we got to end with that was, was something I was incredibly happy with. Whenever I, you know, I think about the Beatles, I marvel at how these four musicians that were just superb musicians that all went on to have, you know, incredibly successful solo careers, um, all came together. And you talk about a moment in time. I mean, that was like lightning in a bottle. And to hear Paul speak so intimately about how some of these songs were crafted you know, and what was happening in the studio and how they were all vibing off each other and how they gave each other very candid feedback, um, I thought was so interesting. And I've always been fascinated uh, with the dynamic of him and Lennon. They, they both were these superb musicians writing songs, infusing their ideas. I think the best line or one of the best lines from Paul is, you know, I was just working with this guy named John now yes. I realize I was working with John Lennon right you know and I I feel like the 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 more distance there is that you know if there was animosity like Paul is giving John his due and the two of them together is the reason the Beatles were the Beatles you know 100 oh, but 100%. also what I love about this is that Ringo is a part of this story. 
you know? And so is George. Like, it's not just Paul and John. Like, the reason, and these guys were 20-something. I know, they were babies. They made made all this music in their 20s. That's the thing that's so astounding. I mean, their career, they left their mark on the world. I mean, when you're a Beatle, you're an institution, but their career was what? Really like eight years? Yeah. What they did in eight years. Now, things were very different back then in that I know bands made money by producing albums, by putting out albums rather than but touring. Things were the different way it back then now. because they changed things too. Like, no, yeah. there was no Beatle you know, like equation that they were fitting into. They were, they were their own thing and they changed the world in a decade. They changed the world in a decade and their sound evolved several times over in that short decade. Totally. They didn't, they didn't want to do the same thing two times in a row. No, they didn't. And things were changing so much just within the world that they would have become obsolete. And the, um, episode that I actually recorded just recently, we deep dive into the California sound and we touch very heavily on the surf sound and the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. And we talk about how the when the Beatles came out, it literally, literally knocked down Brian Wilson, gave him an absolute panic attack because he knew this is where the sound was going. This is where rock was going. And he was going to have to evolve and innovate or die. And then he threw down and they made pet sounds. And then they made pet sounds, but that was only because he had been pushed by the Beatles. Rubber Soul came out, scared him to death. You know, Revolver was a big one in its own right. And then he pushed forward and he made pet sounds. And as a result of pet sounds, the Beatles were listening to him. And they made Sgt. Pepper. Exactly. So it's it's this evolution but I, but, uh, but I, I, I love that idea of artists pushing artists. Oh, it's like yeah. I, 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 you know, I watch other films and documentaries and whatnot. And it's like, OK, I uh, God damn, that was really good. I want to do something better. You know, mm-hmm. the way that the artists pushed each other, though, you know, back then, I also feel like that's a moment in time. I don't know if we're seeing that as much these days. And then that's because maybe there's there's so many different outlets for music. You know, it's hard to have a singular focus at times on one band. But back then, you know, you got your songs on the radio, AM radio. I mean, come on. That was it. I mean, look, I'm not a musician, so I can't speak to the music game. But And there's clearly a ton of music out there, which I think is a great thing as a music mm-hmm. lover. But as a filmmaker, I think you you still throw down and try to elevate your game or, you know, compare yourself to what other people are doing out there. And, and I don't yeah. think there's me, even though there's a gazillion streaming platforms and everything for stuff to come out, I still think it's you're aware of what's good. I guess I'm just focusing on the magic of that time and these seminal albums that came out and how they, you know, how they affected each other, how they influenced each other. I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to see something like that again, at least in the music world. No, we're definitely going to see it again. That's the thing. That's That's the whole idea of like, 
we don't, it, it probably won't be in LA, like it'll be somewhere else, some little mm-hmm. pocket of people are going to come together and do something amazing. Like that keeps happening it does. over and over and over again. So it does. I, I definitely think we're going to see it again. I don't know where, you yeah. know, if I could find out where I'd, I'd start filming now. <laughs> yeah. We talked about the the uh, A&M Records uh, docu-series that's going to be coming out in December. Do you have anything else on the docket that you're working on that you can talk about? The, it, it has been announced. We did a, a documentary on the New Orleans Jazz and Jazz Heritage Fest. Festival. Uh, Jazz Fest. So that's coming out next year. And that that's a fun one for the, the, the music lovers. We, oh, yeah. We shot, I think... 36 different artists at Jazz Fest for their 50th anniversary and interviewed 40 plus people. So, and then the 50th anniversary wasn't, I've never been. So then the 50th anniversary wasn't that where the Stones were supposed to play? Yes. And, and then Jagger got a, yeah, well, no. And <laughs> Mick Jagger got a heart attack or heart something. Uh, so the Stones stepped out. Fleetwood Mac was supposed to step in, and then they bailed <laughs> as oh. well. Um, oh, that's too bad. But we got we got a lot of other cool cats. Yeah, you know, I don't know much about that festival, believe it or not. Um, one day I'll get to go. I, I look at it over the two weekends, and I have friends that are literally diehards that will go to both weekends. I personally don't think I would survive. I I really think that it would. Do you not? Up. Do you not like festivals? I'm, I, festivals are tough. <laughs> you don't, you don't like the people, too many people? No, I love it, but it's just the stamina. All right. So let me paint a picture. Last time I was at Coachella, this was years ago, night three, Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing. Literally, it's probably two minutes into their first song. I passed out and had to be carried out of the festival by Jesus. the- carried yeah, out? Carried out. That's one of those little carts. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was the heat. Maybe it was the drinking. But it was altogether humiliating. <laughs> and I didn't get to see Red Hot Chili Peppers. So imagine this. like, So I, I, I do like festivals. I like being around people. Especially like I can't wait to be around people. Mm-hmm. post covid again we shot this thing on imax cameras it's the biggest shoot i've ever done wow immersed in like a hundred thousand people <laughs> running around shooting these stuff <laughs> and it's the most exhausting thing i've ever done and yet i find myself like in the pit while we're shooting Katy Perry or Gary Clark Jr. or like on and on and on, just like crazy, amazing people just being like, what am I doing here? You know? (laughs) And did you look at the photographers around you at that point and go, I made the right decision? Yeah. Well, I was like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm kind of still doing that same job because I'm in the pit, but I'm telling other people what to do. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> and when's that come out? Uh, I think, I don't know if it's been announced yet. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Well, we'll stay tuned for it. Ne- next year. <gasps> All right. That is about maybe as close as I will come to the Jazz Fest uh, Festival, but I can't wait to see it. No, you got to go. I think it's probably the greatest music festival that I'm aware of. The story we tell in the film is the story of New Orleans and the culture and how it birthed so much of this music. Jazz, blues, all of that is just connected to Cajun. Like it's all, it all goes back to New Orleans. And it's like, why this, why this place? All right, now well, I really want to go. Let, let's do another one of these from there. Yes. Yes, let's do another one of these from there. That would be, excuse my language, so fucking rad. Yes. I would love that. Well, I know know some people there now. Yeah, I'm sure you do. (laughs) Courtesy of having worked on this thing for a couple of years. (laughs) All right, well, a couple last questions before I let you go. All right. Just, it's all about you right now. It's all about you. Three songs. Three of your favorite classic rock songs that maybe inspired you growing up or blew your mind growing up, touched you in some way. My first favorite rock album was Zendata Mandata by The Police. And this, <laughs> it's a silly song, but the song that sticks out is Da Do 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 Da 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 Da. <laughs> That's all I want to say to you. (laughs) I probably listened to that album countless times on vinyl in my parents' basement. Um, I think I have to add Queen and Another One Bites the Dust. (laughs) Like my dad was a huge, my dad saw Queen, I think like three times in concert, like huge Queen fan. And there was something about that just that beat that boom, boom. Mm-hmm. and then i would absolutely have to list you two who's like my favorite band and i would say i still haven't found what i'm looking for that's such a great song and the i still haven't found what i'm looking for by you two that song instantly also where the streets have no name uh puts you in this contemplative where, state. where the streets don't have no i mean that would be my follow-up. Having seen you two several times and photographed them and interviewed them, when Where the Streets Have No Aim come on and it's just the red screen, it literally brings me to tears. Mm-hmm. It's, so I probably should have said that instead of the other one. But Either one. Because both of them evoke a feeling and they evoke a lot of emotion. They do for you, but they definitely did for me too. So, you know, it's funny. I was a fan of you too, but it didn't, I don't think they really got me. And this probably had to do with age until Octum Baby came out. I mean, Octum Baby, that was, I I was in high school when Octum Baby came out. It's like the perfect album. Right. So I was probably 12 came out in like 92 right 91 91 so yeah so yeah yeah so I was 12 and so this is kind of that coming of age album Mm -hmm. and the music was playing all over the radio but on MTV the two videos that were constantly playing was Mysterious Ways and One Mm -hmm. 
And <laughs> I think I'd mentioned this before, actually, because it was a moment for me watching one, the music video and looking at Bono. And I'm like, oh, no, I like boys. Like this was like, <laughs> no. That was your moment of like. That was my moment. And I've talked about it before, but he's sitting there at the bar and he got his drink and he looks all forlorn and he's had this broken heart and he keeps running his hands through that hair of his. And I'm like, (laughs) 12-year-old girl getting hot? Come on. Girls, Girls get there quicker. What was your first concert? Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five at Comiskey Park. Yeah. And I had a jacket with zippers and the glove. No. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. You remember it? And it was awesome, I'm sure. I mean, it would like just being a kid at a concert of any kind was, but yes, it was amazing. Although, like, I don't know if it's okay to like Michael Jackson anymore, but. A lot of people are able to separate the music from the man, so I teach their own. Yes. At that point, yes. I was enthralled. Top five. I'll let you choose. five? Okay. Top five rock bands or rock albums of all time for you. Top five. Let's go with bands. So we know that you choose up there. U2, yeah, we'll go with top five bands, okay? Mm-hmm. U2, Pink Floyd, hmm. Radiohead, Bob Dylan, and I'll throw in Wilco. Wilco. Oh, yeah. I like that selection. Kind of runs the gamut. Yeah, there's some contemporary and yeah. classic. Some older stuff in there. Yeah. Oh, those are good answers. Those are good answers. Well, I'm glad I got it right. No, you did a great job. And you did a great job on the interview. Thank you so much for the time, Ryan. It's a pleasure. I'll see you in New Orleans. Oh, oh, you most definitely will. We're going to do this again. A big thank you to Ryan Suffren for coming on today. And if you guys haven't seen the documentaries, you can find Laurel Canyon, A Moment in Time on Amazon Prime and McCartney 321 on Hulu. So definitely check out those documentaries. And be sure to stay tuned for the upcoming documentary on A&M Records. In the meantime, don't forget to follow LA Woman Rocks on Instagram and rate and review us on anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 